All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with author and artist Ray Fox about the Marvel method, monsters, John Constantine, Image Comics, writing story arcs for classic characters, and more. As always, thank you for listening, and if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. Ray, uh, take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all the above? Totally a book reader. If I built any forts, they were so that I could hide in them and read the books. (laughs) Do you have any specific... You know, even when I was a kid... I was into the darker stuff. There were these books. They weren't the Goosebumps series. They were kind of pre-Goosebumps that were like scary books that I would get from the library that were for kids. And then I pretty quickly graduated to like, I think I was reading Stephen King books when I was about 11 and 12. A little too young, but happy to do it. Did you ever read any Christopher Pike? That's what comes to mind when I think pre-Goosebumps, kind of goosebumps yeah. stuff. Yeah, I definitely did. Yeah. I mean, I was really voracious as a kid. I remember my parents would bring me to the library to keep me busy, I guess. And I read everything that looked interesting to me. Whereabouts did you grow up, by the way? Toronto in Canada. I still live here. I love this place. A lot of my guests are in Toronto. That's one of the hubs in the 90s for a lot of voice acting. Yeah, I remember that. Through friends, I used to know a couple people that were involved with X-Men and Beetlejuice and stuff like that. So what sort of records were spinning around the house when you were growing up? What kind of music did you listen to? Before I was buying them for myself, there was a lot of uh, ABBA, pop kind of stuff. As soon as I was buying for myself, the turntables were, you know, the cramps, alien sex fiend. It was, it was all that kind of stuff. Stuff that made my parents very upset. So speaking of your parents, were either of them artistically inclined? Do you think that's where the roots came from? Uh, not really, but my grandfather really was. My grandfather was a painter, and my parents think that I must have got some of his kind of uh, painterly vibes, but also like a bit of a philosophical bent. So what's the chicken and egg with you, Ray? Was, did, would you say that writing came first or drawing? Drawing, I think for almost everybody, drawing yeah. is first, really like everybody draws when they're a kid, right? I was drawing first, and I, I remember... That before I ever had any thoughts of being a writer, I was reading a lot of comics and I was drawing a lot of the characters out of the comics. And then it was, I was probably about 12 when the Alan Moore Swamp Thing issues hit the stands Mm -hmm. and I was buying them in the store. And those specifically were the books that made me want to be a writer. I don't have it on camera, but I've got Swamp Thing 37, first appearance of Constantine over there on the wall. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. There's a local store here, The Beguiling, which is a fantastic comic book store. And he has one of the John Toddleben pages 
with Constantine on it. And, and me and a couple of the other artists who live in town have pretty frequently tried to make him offers on that page and it'll never sell it. Not for sale. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Ray, when you think back to formative films and TV shows that you grew up on, what pops into your head? Definitely. I mean, when I was a little kid, it was funny when I was a little kid, there was a fashion for like kind of freaky soap operas. So there was like dark shadows. And here in Canada, there was a, a really strange little program called Strange Paradise which was similar to Dark Shadows. It was like a, a mansion with scary monsters living in it and whatever. We had a kid's comedy show called The Hilarious House of Frightenstein. It was just like a kid's variety show, but it was like hosted by werewolves and vampires and the like. So I always kind of had this kind of sort of Halloween bent. And then I'm a Gen Xer. It was pretty, the TV rules were pretty lax when i was a kid and so uh, i remember as early as i can remember i i was watching movies like alien you know the yeah. exorcist the shining and these had a huge impact on me because they didn't just scare me and i wasn't just like oh i gotta watch more of this though that was definitely part of it that it it had a, a much stronger emotional impact on me than a lot of other things but it was also that i was amazed at the way people could tell these stories that were affecting me so deeply so i was i was hooked from the time i was like 10 or 11 years old right and i think all of us that are sort of into the more macabre side of things it always starts early i think so too yeah. i think there's just a i think there's like a i want to say like a a personality bent that it just like it just there's certain people who seem to be attracted to that stuff from when they're quite young you know my, my wife she's a uh, first grade teacher and she was complaining to me the other day about how one of her kids saw a certain movie that she would never show a kid and i'm like well you know i'm the wrong one to be preaching to because you know i'm five years old watching hellraiser <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, it's funny, I'm a parent and, and I find myself really careful with, you know, what my kids see. And then I, I think to myself sometimes, like, my kids are already much older than I was when I started watching a lot of this stuff. So, you know, maybe it's not such a big deal. This is something I'd ask, ask everyone, Ray, cause just because you never know. Uh, what scared you as a kid? Oh, well, okay. So actually, one of the reasons I ended up getting into writing horror is that as as a kid and actually as a young adult all the way probably up till my 20s i had really powerfully intense nightmares they were about all kinds of things but when i was a little kid i was scared of the stuff that scares a lot of kids which is the things that appear almost human but aren't so like mannequins dolls and even to a certain extent i have a strong memory when i was young of um you know when they do construction and sometimes they have these these warning things standing there with a light blinking on top those freaked me out when i was a kid because they kind of almost looked like people but they weren't people at all so what about the first film that you saw in theaters that's usually pretty formative the first film that i remember seeing in theaters it was actually i think it was the empire strikes back and i think i saw it at a drive-in if I remember it correctly. So, I mean, this all marks me as like <laughs> extremely old, I know. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's the first movie I remember seeing in the theater. And, and yeah, it, it obviously had a huge impact on me. You know, the pandemic sort of 
gave this resurgence to the drive-in, though, so it's kind of come back. I don't know if you remember, but as soon as the pandemic happened and all the theaters started uh, shutting down, that movie The Wretched, which is just a typical creature feature, it hit the drive-in and went number one in the country. And if it wasn't for the pandemic, no one would ever saw that movie. Right, but the drive-ins made it happen. Yeah, yeah, I'm right that's there. cool. I I used to love drive-in theaters, actually. Yeah, we still got one that's kind of local. We go through from time to time. It's a nice little dip back into the past. You just said you started drawing first. Now, how early on did you begin to experiment writing? When I was a teenager. You know, the first writing that I remember doing that I wasn't made to do for school, I was probably about 15. But that was around the same time that I was, like, rapidly expanding and like hunting down the media that was really inspiring me so like up until that point i kind of bought comics as they came to whatever shop was near me but when i was about 14 or 15 that's when i started like hunting things down and being like i really love swamp things so i'm gonna go find these other books by alan moore i really love you know some of the books that i'm seeing by some other authors and i'm gonna chase them down at the time frank miller and some of these other people. So that was, uh, you know, about 14, 15 was the time I really started to sit down with pen and paper and say, I, I want to write my own stories. When it comes to writing, what does your process look like? Are you a big outliner? Do you like to just go with the flow and edit later? It's funny. I'm kind of a mix. I always start with a notebook and I always lay down kind of a lot of thoughts about what I want to talk about and where I want to go with something. But I do believe that if you, you can over outline something. I do believe you can sort of suck the life out of a project by detailing too much of a plan and sticking to it too close. So I definitely, once I know what I want to do, I try to avoid too much planning. I'll never start something without knowing how I want to end it. But beyond that, I try to let things flow kind of freely. Otherwise, I, I don't want to stand in the way of ideas. I don't want to, I hate when I come up with a, with an idea that I think is more interesting than what I was going to do, but I'm not, I can't go with it for one reason or another. So when you start writing in your teenage years, do you, do you have a plan of where you want to go professionally? And then it kind of, you realize that you could maybe jump into this realm? Oh uh, God, no. <laughs> uh, when I was first writing, I was just writing stories. I had no, I mean, I had in my head sort of a vague notion that I wanted to do comics. And then I remember like you know, I sort of hit a period in my early 20s where I decided that I didn't know if that was the way to go and if it would be smarter to try and write prose or screenplays. And then it didn't take me long to realize that what I really love is comics. I sort of snapped right back to it. I think my my plan started happening when I was really about uh, maybe 24 years old. And then I said, no, this is what I want to do. And I'm, I'm going to figure out how to do it. So what was your plan prior to that? Were you just going to you know, be architect or something? <laughs> uh, well, I went to school for engineering. and uh, but, uh, but all the time I was in there, I had this vague notion that I, I don't really want to do this. I want to be a writer. But it was a very vague notion. It was not a strong plan until I was basically on the on the verge of graduating from university. And then I said, okay, if I'm really going to do this, I need to make a plan. So if you had to pinpoint a big break, quote unquote, into the comic realm, what would you consider that to be? Well, so for a few years, what I did was I was doing very DIY comics, like very like written and drawn and completely by myself and, and uh, printed on you know, eight and a half by 11 paper folded in half, like zines. I would take it to zine fairs. I got a couple of smaller gigs with big companies, but I think the big sort of break really happened 
when uh, I was approached by people at uh, DC Vertigo who wanted to adapt basically one of my zines or have me redo one of my zines. And that um, gave rise to a, a book called Nemovore. So, Rhea, obviously I wanted to ask you specifically about your works on Constantine and Justice League Dark. How did the uh, how did those opportunities come about? Well, so one of my greatest friends in the industry and just generally, you know, one of my greatest friends uh, is Jeff Lemire. He and I sort of came up at the same time and we'd see each other at conventions a lot and everything. And he kind of uh, was he was doing a lot of work or starting to do a lot of work at DC right when I was sort of I finished with Nemovore and I was trying to figure out if I wanted to do something else with them. And it was sort of going back and forth for a while. And he got the Justice League Dark gig and it was sort of one gig too many for him. So uh, together we talked to DC and they decided to bring me in on it. So I shared duty with him on Justice League Dark. Then I took that book over and from there I I took um, Constantine on and some other books after that. So when you're dealing with a character like Constantine or any other character that's been established for X amount of years, how do you toe the line between, you know, staying true to that original character and kind of putting your own stamp on things? I guess what you have to do is you have to find what it is you love about the character as they exist and then figure out if there's something you want to say about it. For me, Constantine has always been my favorite character at DC Comics. I, it was funny. It used to be with people said, "Could you, if you could write anything for DC, what would it be? And I used to say Constantine. But now I got to do it for two years. So I get to say I already did it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in the case of John Constantine, looking at the character, what I always loved about him was that he was what they called the working class mage. He was, he was basically, he had no formal education. He had no money. He had no pedigree. He wasn't somebody like Zatanna with a wizard father, you know. He was just this guy from out of the poorest parts of Liverpool who happened to know a thing or two. And, you know, I always loved that he operated in a way where you couldn't even really tell how much he did or didn't know. He he came across like a more like a con artist than a wizard. Yeah. And it caused the so-called legitimate wizards of DC continuity, both the heroes and the villains, to look down on him. And that, to me, was the most interesting thing about him, that despite everything that was standing in his way, John kind of muscled his way into the community and did what he needed to do. I mean, if you go all the way back to the American Gothic story in Swamp Thing, John Constantine essentially is the only one, the only operator involved who sets everything up so that they can potentially save the world, do what needs to be done, despite everyone everywhere resisting him, telling him he doesn't deserve to be there, he doesn't have the knowledge, he doesn't have the skill, he doesn't have the whatever. And that was always the most interesting thing about him to me. So when I was writing Constantine, it was really all about that. It was really all about him facing, you know, what would be called the magical establishment and them telling him he doesn't deserve to be there and him kind of telling them, I don't care what you think I deserve. I'm here to do what I need to do. Well said. Were you a a Hellblazer reader growing up? Oh God, yeah. There were so many incredible authors working on that book. I can't even... Jamie Delano. Yeah, Jamie Jamie Delano was uh, my favorite, but obviously there were so many that were so good. I, I was one of those people who for a while I would pick up just about anything that vertigo put out mm-hmm. you know sort of there was a period in the 90s but really the books that i was really nuts about were hellblazer and the invisibles 
I think to this day, Hellblazer is still the longest running comic issues. It is. And it's also the only book that DC's ever printed where the main character ages in real time. So just while we're on the subject, uh, I love Matt Ryan's adaption of Constantine on the screen. I was just asking what you think of uh, your opinion of his work is. I love it. Both when he did the, the TV show and when he does the voice. I think he nails it. It's a shame that NBC canceled that show. It is a shame. I mean, it's funny because the quality of Constantine that's so great is is his charm. And, you know, even the fact that though he's pretty bitter and cynical, he still seems like the kind of guy you'd probably want to hang out with. Yeah. (laughs) Although that could be a fatal mistake. Oh, yeah. At your own peril. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Matt brought that across really well, that no matter what was going on, or how dark the scene was or anything, there was always this kind of twinkle in his eye that made you understand why people want to be around John. Right. And uh, in your opinion, Ray, uh, what do you feel has been the most accurate slash best comic to TV or film adaption? Oh, that's a tough one. I really loved Road to Perdition. It was a it was a Vertigo comic and then, or not Vertigo, it was a DC comic, I think. Uh, and then it was adapted into a film with Tom Hanks uh, it was like a 1930s crime movie that was really good. I mean, recently they did a TV show of Jeff Lemire's Essex County, which was very, very good. I don't know. I'm seeing so many adaptations this time. It's it's and a lot of them are are around now, and a lot of them are getting pretty good. So I think The Boys improves on the comic. So, so we hear a lot about you know the Marvel method when it comes to comics. And, uh, yeah. you know, you've worked with Marvel, DC, Image. How does their that method differ from other companies you've worked with, and do you like it? Well, it's funny because most of the times I've worked with Marvel, they sort of coincidentally have asked me for the full script approach, which is the DC approach. The full script just means you write everything out in full, whereas the, the sort of old-school Marvel method is you, you sort of more give a plot summary to the artist, and they they figure out what's on each page and then you do dialogue on top of that afterwards. I have done a couple of books in the sort of Marvel method style. It requires a lot more trust in your artist, but that's fine. A lot of the artists I work with are pretty great and they'll often come up with a better way to stage something than I think of. I mean, sort of behind the scenes, I guess fans don't really know, but I'll write like a very tight full script and then the artist will like contact me and say, I've got another idea for this scene. And I'll just say, oh, stage it any way you want. I wrote mm-hmm. it the way I thought of, but like, yeah, like you stage it your way, we'll work it out. Are you familiar with Gerald Brom? Yes. He writes and he draws, so it has to be a hell of a feeling as an artist just to be able to write and illustrate your own stuff. It's not like anything else because then your ideas are coming out like unfiltered. You're also way, way more critical of your own work. So it's kind of like, it's funny because I I love it more than anything else and I hate it more than anything else. Do you insist that if you're writing that you're going to illustrate, have you ever had someone else illustrate your own writings? I prefer it. (laughs) If a publisher says they want someone else on the art, I'm, I'm usually happy to do that because I know so many incredible artists in the field. It doesn't really bother me. But given the choice, I would always write or, or draw or paint my own stories. Yeah. Out of all the characters that you that you've worked on or projects, which would you consider the most challenging? The one that you've lost sleep over? Well, 
I can split that into two parts. I can split that into the stuff that I did for hire and I can split that into my own. Because the stuff I did for, say, DC, there were some very challenging books. There uh, There was a book that I did where we reimagined Ragman. It was great, but it was, we were kind of in a world between that they wanted us to reimagine the character, but they wanted to make the fans of the old version of the character happy. And it was painful. It was a painful book to write. Uh, Also because I loved the old version of the character and they wanted a completely reimagined character. So it was kind of like wrestling with myself all the time. Speaking about my own books, uh, some of the projects that I think were the most successful are often the most difficult because I'm sort of digging into a place that that's deep, you know, or, or difficult, right? So, I mean, I did a book called Intersect for Image is, I think, considered my most difficult book to read, but it's one that I love the most, too. I think it's a strong one, a very strong book, but it definitely was very, very hard to put together. You just mentioned Image. I just recently interviewed Todd McFarland, and I just got to ask you, is there a major difference as an artist or a writer working for Image than the other two? Because he just seems like a totally different monster, creative-wise. It's completely different. I guess when you're working for DC or Marvel or you know even some of the other companies where you're doing a licensed or worked for hire book the consideration is usually more about the brand right yeah and you know within the parameters of the brand you are free to create and you can do something really great and i definitely do see people do great things and i think i've I've succeeded once or twice, but you still are within like, you know, I'm in the Warner Brothers umbrella. There's things I can't talk about. There's things I can't say. And there's things I can't do because they would consider to be damaging the brand. I mentioned earlier how they aged up John Constantine. Like it's very difficult at those companies to actually propose a story where there's a real change in one of their characters' lives, like things that come with aging. But when you're working on a book for a company like Image, it's really, it's unparalleled freedom. It's, you can talk about anything, you can do anything, but of course, because you don't have that brand behind you, it's all on you. If it succeeds, it's because you're fantastic or whatever, or lucky. If it fails, it's all your fault. Since I just mentioned Gerald Brom, he talked about the same thing that you just said. Sometimes he prefers to work in a box. If I'm doing a creator-owned book for, for say, Image or, or elsewhere, it's a lot more stressful. It's all on me, right? If I'm writing a, you know, a, a tie-in to Batman or if I'm writing a book like Murder World for Marvel, it's still, there's still pressure, but it's not the same. It's, it's, you know that every X-Men fan is going to look at Murder World. You know that every Batman fan is going to look at a Batman book and they'll make their judgments, but they'll all look at it. But when you do, if I do a book like Underwinter for Image, there is no guarantee that anyone's even going to stop to glance at it. Just speaking on that, working within the brand, is there a situation that you've been in where you sent something in and you got to, you know, you need to pull back on this a little, maybe it's a little bit too much? Many, many times. (laughs) (laughs) Is it usually horror related stuff? Yeah, usually horror related stuff, um, usually subjects they don't want covered or things they don't want depicted. Horror related stuff and also just they can get skittish about like any time I wanted to do a sex scene with John Constantine, even heterosexual, not just not just you know uh, anything about his bisexuality, they got a little skittish. I mean, to be fair, most of the time we would make it happen, but it was still a discussion that had to be had. 
Whereas, uh, you know, with many other characters, with Ragman, for instance, or with um, with the Spectre in Gotham by Midnight, most of the things that got pushed back on were just horror things, just things where something was considered perhaps a little too disturbing or too gory, maybe a little too timely. Very famously, I think, was it the Warren Ellis issue of Hellblazer that got pulled because it was uh, there was a school shooting? I mean, that kind of consideration happens, and I get it. Like, I'm not mad if somebody at DC says, normally you could do a story about this, but right now is not a good time. I totally understand it because you're talking about people who they're not creatives and they're facing down the barrel of executive judgment that can come down on them if they get bad press or whatever. Right. And in that same vein, just have you had one of those decisions come down where you felt like it changed the product to the point where you weren't happy with it any further? I mean, if that really happened, I would quit. Nothing that's come out that I did made me so unhappy that I would denounce it or anything. There's definitely decisions that I think were, I still think were not the right decision, but it's a matter of opinion. So, uh, Ray, this is also something I like to ask everyone. What's the best art-related and, I guess, writing-related advice that you received in your career and who gave it to you? I have two answers for that. One was directly given to me and one came from a book. So when I was 15, around the time that I decided I wanted to be a, a real writer, I went to a comic book convention and Harlan Ellison was there. And I spoke to him and I told him, I don't even know why, but I, I thought I'd like to tell him that I want to be a writer. And he said, uh, well, have you got anything that I can read right now? And I said, well, no, I'm like a teenager at a comic book convention. And he said, can you go home and bring me back something tomorrow that I can read? And I said, well, I don't know. And he said, kid, the difference between a writer and a loser is finished work. Oh man, that hurts. <laughs> And it stung so bad, but uh, it's never left my mind. And for many of the years when I thought, you know, I, I want to be a writer, I'm aspiring to be a writer, I could hear his like, you know, sort of angry grating voice telling me I had to finish something or I wasn't really a writer. The best writing advice I ever got from book, uh, David Mamet published a book called On Directing Film, and in it, he has a transcript of a lecture that he gave at a film school and in the lecture they break down how to tell a story and he talks about how for instance if you want to convey that a character is late for something the first thought that most people or early for something the most thought that people have the first thought that most people have is to show a clock right just you show a clock it's 6 30 in the morning pan down to a kid at school and he said that's fine that's acceptable People will understand it, but it is also the first thing that everyone thinks of. So if you want to be a great writer, you have to think of the next thing, the thing that not everybody thinks of, then tell your story. And I always thought that that was fantastic advice for writers, that you think of the first thing, that's the simple thing. And if you can, you think of something more interesting than that. Ray, have you had any brush-ups, had any uh, experience writing scripts uh, for film or television? Do you dip your toe into that as well? I've done a little bit of like script doctor work. I've done a little bit of like going over someone else's script and sort of punching it up or, or making dialogue changes and everything like that. But I, I've not done any real professional screenplay or teleplay work. And uh, to be fairly honest it's not something that's ever really attracted me my love is comics yeah and yeah. that's kind of where i am it, you know obviously like just about everybody if somebody 
came along and dumped a ridiculous sum on the table and said, write me a screenplay, obviously I would do it. Uh, and I'm sure it would not be too much of a leap from comics, but it's not really what I think about. So as a longtime Hellblazer fan, Constantine writer, what do you think of Keanu? Well, you know, it's funny. The character in that movie is not John Constantine from Hellblazer, but he is a John Constantine that makes sense to me, right? I mean, Agreed. I still in I enjoy that movie. I, I think it's fun. And, and the thing is, what Keanu gets in that movie, what they convey, I think, correctly, is still the idea of this sort of put upon this person who does what needs to be done, even when it's unpleasant. And even if he doesn't like to do it, he still knows what needs to be done and he does it and, and kind of grits his teeth and fights through it. And I, I thought it was a fun interpretation of him. It was just, it was like, it was John Constantine through a Hollywood lens. It was, let's make him American. Let's make him, you know, Keanu Reeves. In part, I think, because Keanu Reeves was a fan of the source material and, and he really wanted to get that made. And you can see his enthusiasm in the role. I'm actually not one of those people who hates on that. I, I, I love that film. And if they make another, I'd be right there to see it. I'm with you, too. Uh, the way I describe it to fans who ask me about it is, it's comic books, man. Like, there's a thousand different variants for every character. That's the way I look at Keanu's Constantine. Yeah, and I mean, the thing about comic books, too, is because there's so many versions of every character, you can't help but when you're dealing with anybody who's a fan, they have their favorite. Yeah. And if your favorite doesn't match up with their favorite, or if your version doesn't match up with their favorite obviously there's going to be friction but most fans know that there's going to be a different take and so as far as i'm concerned that, that movie is just a different take on john and on that subject i believe they are making a part two i think that's been announced i heard about that and I, i'm thrilled yeah me too i actually think he'd make an even better john constantine now because he's a bit older and he's a bit you know he, he just seems a little bit more world weary like if you saw did you see the third Bill and Ted's movie? Bill and Ted's. I did. I, I recently I just interviewed Alex Winter. Oh, did you? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I remember I watched that movie and I enjoyed it, but the whole time, you know, he he seemed so much Keanu Reeves specifically seemed so much darker <laughs> yeah. than in the early movies, and I kept thinking to myself, man, now he would be like a really good John Constantine. And Keanu doesn't need the accent, you know, if we get it. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, most people don't do the accent anyway. John, if I remember correctly, and I think I do, John's from Liverpool. He, he sh you know, I've heard a couple jokes about this, but he should sound like Paul McCartney. Yeah, and Matt Ryan has that Welsh thing going on. He's talked about that a bit. Yeah, and, you know, but Matt's version is amazing. So. Yeah. So, Ray, this is also something I like to ask everyone, just so we're winding down here. Uh, have you ever had an experience that you would consider supernatural or paranormal? Uh, no, I've been dying to <laughs> wish. <laughs> it's never happened. I've done my best, especially when I was younger. I would do urban exploration. I would go to places that they said were haunted. Nothing. Maybe one day. Yeah, you never know. That's why I ask the question. Sometimes they give me a 30-minute answer. Sometimes it's five seconds. <laughs> You're never too old. Maybe I'm going to be like one of those guys that, like, I'm going to turn... 70 and i'm gonna i'm gonna go into like psychedelic exploration and <laughs> that's a quick way to experience like... something <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that'll that'll definitely have you experiencing something so uh, have you seen any good movies lately 
Actually, yeah. Uh, just recently, based on a recommendation, I watched a movie called Cobweb, which is a horror movie. It's like a small, low-budget horror movie that I really, really loved. I'm not familiar with that one. Is it pretty new? Uh, it's pretty new. I think it basically died on the vine because it came out in the same weekend as Barbie and Oppenheimer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, you can see it now on... I, I can't remember which streaming service you can see it on. Maybe it was Shudder. I don't remember. But I loved it. I thought it was great. So, Ray, just to put a bow on everything here, not going to keep you all uh, afternoon, uh, what's on the horizon for you? Let's see. There's one thing that I'm writing for Dark Horse right now, but I don't think I can say what it is yet. Yeah, don't get in trouble. Uh, I have uh, I have a new like uh, creator-owned book coming out from Image early next year will be announced soon but uh i mean i can i can tell you now what it's called uh, it's up to me when it's announced but uh it's called dana and it's a it's a horror book so we're looking like early next year for the official release early next year yeah well ray thank you for giving me some of your time man i'm a big fan appreciate you it's been great talking Thanks, to you man. oh it's a pleasure thank you all right folks that's a wrap I hope you enjoyed that chat with Ray. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs>